featuring Stevie Wonder, How Come, How Long, uh, released in 1996, but still so beautiful and still so relevant. 18 minutes, it's 14 minutes after 11. And you know what it means? It means we get into the closet. I see some of you are saying, I'm Pemba, saying, closet. And then uh, Joseph in Orange Farm is saying, DJ Ben deserves awards for the best music selector. Let us give him an award. I award you. The A-teamers award you, DJ Benzito. You are the selector. You are the A-team selector. A-teamers, we are going to be talking untreatable STDs and how you can navigate around them to still ensure that you have a, a healthy, relatively healthy sexual life, if there's such a thing. We're going to be talking to Dr. Anthony Smith, who's a family physician and a medical sexologist. Tweet at SFM Radio and at Patricia N. Dooley. This part of the program is not suitable for sensitive listeners and for anyone under the age of 18. Note that the views expressed on this show are not that of the station or the presenter. Closet Conversations. Let's welcome our A-team doctor, Dr. Anthony Smith. Thank you very much for joining us. Good evening. Hi, Patricia. It's good to be with you tonight. I'm glad that we've connected again. We are speaking about untreatable or incurable STDs. And uh, some of them, um, you know, are clearly life-threatening. But there is medication, hopefully, for them. But people who have them still want to enjoy intimacy. They still want to explore their sexual lives. So we want to know how we can best do this. What are some of these STDs that are untreatable? So, you know, Patricia, I think, um, the, you know, just the beginning of this and the introduction of these STIs um, potentially can fill people's minds with a sense of hopelessness, you know, the, 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 even the word untreatable. So, um, in a way, they can all be treated, but they may not be able to be totally cured. And this does seem like a paradox. How can you treat something but not cure it? Well, this is what you're going to find out this evening, because... Each of these STIs, and the STIs that we talk about are HIV, we know about HIV, herpes, simplex, uh, human papillomavirus, HPV, and, and certain types of hepatitis B infection. So there's four viral infections which um, have the potential to stay in the body. That means that there isn't a direct, clear medical treatment that will clear them and get rid of them altogether. And then it becomes a question of managing them so that uh, you can diminish the sense of distress that you get. We are, our bodies are teeming with all kinds of organisms. I mean, there's, there's even you, know, you could think of it as being the fact that every time you go out to buy the milk, it's you and you know a kind of a million of your favorite microorganisms are actually going with you in order to 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 kind of you know, make that uh, make that buy of the milk. So we are many many microorganisms, but some of them cause us to have distress and cause illnesses and cause problems in our everyday lives. And of course, an organism that causes problems in your sexual life can cause a great deal of distress. Mm, I can imagine. I mean, when one hears of them um, having any sort of uh, um, disease or viral infection, they you obviously get shocked. But when it has to do with your sexual health, then the shock also is mixed with uh, embarrassment and shame. So let's start with uh, perhaps uh, the HPV um, virus. How, do, how does that, you know, affect one's sexual life? Well, 
HPV virus, a very, very small virus, which you'll be surprised to hear, um, really at one time or another will affect the insect up to 70 to 80% of the population who are sexually active. So this is a virus which gets passed backwards and forwards, generally through sexual activity and the close contact of skin on skin, and usually with this moist areas as well. So the genitals, for example, are particularly um, particularly um, uh, susceptible. And um, those areas um, are, are places where the virus particularly likes to settle. The same with the human papillomavirus is that the majority of them will land in the body and then the immune system will fight them off. Um, so, um, basically, what, what that means is that uh, your immune system will be able to get rid of them before they actually have any effect on you. You may not even know, in fact, that, uh, if you have any, that you've had these ESTIs or but there are some people who are going to know. And the most common effect is that of warts. Little warts that can be found in the anus, they can be found in the penis, they can be found anywhere around the genitals, in fact, anywhere around the body. They can be transmitted through oral sex, through intercourse of sex, they can also be in the mouth and the throat. But Dr. Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith, we, mm. we're having troubles hearing you. It seems your line is oh. not that grand. I'm going to ask okay. you to just uh, uh, go back to Ben and let's try and sort out your line so we can, uh, you know, okay. uh, go back to our conversation. A-teamers. Have you been worried since uh, you've been diagnosed with one of these uncurable, not untreatable, because there are treatments for them, but uncurable STDs such as hepatitis or the HIV or um, even the HPV? Um, Have you been diagnosed with one of them? And perhaps asking yourself questions around, can I still have a a healthy sex life? Um, Can I perhaps even have children after, you know, finding out. If you've got such questions, please do call in and ask your questions. Our guest is Dr. Anthony Smith, who's a family physician and medical sexologist. What we want to do is make sure that you know what treatment you can go for when you've got these STDs. So call in and ask about treatment options, but also how you can keep yourself and your partner safe and also still enjoy a healthy sexual life. You can also WhatsApp on 0614104107. Remember, it's closet conversations, so being anonymous is okay. SMSs go to 41391. Monday to Thursday, 10 p.m. till midnight. Closet Conversations. We are in discussion with Dr. Anthony Smith. And remember, no one under the age of 18 should be tuned in right now. We are talking uncurable STDs. There could be treatment for them, but that's what uh, Dr. Anthony Smith is going to be letting us in on. Uh, Dr. Smith, I'm glad that you are back. Hopefully your line is going to be a bit more stable. You were telling us about HPV and what some of the signs are. Um, I think the last thing I caught was around uh, gentle warts. Yes, that's right. Good. Um, so I hope that's a little clearer. I'm sorry for that uh, connection earlier. Um, yeah, so, so the one thing which, which will present, which really can be an impediment to sexual activity, because nobody wants to have a blemish on the genitals, is to have a wart. And these warts can be found in any of the places where sexual activity occurs. So that could be the genitals, the anogenital area. Uh, it can be the throat or the mouth uh, due to oral sex. But even an ordinary wart that you can find in your hand or you can find on your foot can sometimes be caused by 
the HPV virus. And this can cause a lot of distress because it's the shame of having an STI. Um, what this means to people is something which they find very, very difficult to actually deal with. And then there's the question of how to deal with it with your partner. So this may not directly make sex difficult, but but really to, to, to have to have a conversation with your partner and then to try to deal with some of the emotions that come out of figuring out who gave it to who and where it came from. And you know, these conversations are often relatively unproductive and just cause difficult emotions. But for the most part, they do elicit a lot of um, strong emotions and difficulties between couples in terms of just relating around it and having to talk about it. Though one could argue that these conversations are really excellent conversations, very difficult ones to have because they really teach you so much about communication and often one's fears are allayed along the way as well. So those are the those are the warts from HPV. But more serious than the warts that you get are the changes that you can get in women in their services and cervixes. Um where you can get atypical cells resulting from the action of the HPV, which could potentially cause cervical cancer at a later stage. And in a smaller percentage of men who have sex with men, in the, if they are uh, the passive partners and are having anal sex, there is also a chance in them that they may get anal carcinomas from HPV. It's very, very rare. And not everybody who has HPV will get a cancer. In fact, it's the minority. But this is why we... Those doctors like to screen for these problems. And why women go for pap smears and they go and have their cervical uh, cytology, the cells of the, of, the, of the cervix tested for, both for HPV and for atypical cellular structures, which can act as precursors for uh, cervical cancer at a later stage. So these, are, these are, are important aspects. We know medical sciences reveal that HPV is a, a precursor to cervical cancer and screening uh, programs around the world have drastically reduced the incidence of cervical cancer. So it's a really useful thing to be getting pap smears regularly. Um, What is interesting, though, is that the warts that you get are generally not the same HPV virus which causes cancer. And there's a lot of different HPV viruses. Um, You know, there's, there's, uh, you know, 20, 30 different ones, maybe even a little more than that. Um, and only some of those are cancerous. The vast majority actually don't cause cancer and are very harmless, and the body will take care of them eventually. Now, with the person who's got HPV, um, how can they practice a safe sex? So it, it, it's a very tricky thing because you may not know that you've got HPV. Um, and if you don't know that you've got HPV, I mean, well, you should be practicing safe sex anyway because you want to you want to protect yourself from from really the vast spectrum of STIs that are out there, not, not just HPV. So if you are with a new partner, you have multiple partners, or you are in a position where you may be at greater risk. So the first step in trying to prevent yourself from getting an STI, and that's for HPV as well, is is to have a sense of what your risk is, um, because if you've been in a long-term relationship with somebody, you know that your risk is a lot less and you don't have to take the same degree of protection as you would with uh, a partner which is a little bit more unknown. So the first step in safe sex is really to have conversations with your prospective partners. These are conversations which are so difficult to have. But to try to open up 
a conversation around, you know, have you had, is there anything that I need to be worried about? Um, uh, you know, do you want to hear about my sexual history? You kind of exchange information, which is usually very much appreciated, but it's difficult to actually say and talk about. Then thereafter, condoms are really the first and best way to be able to prevent transmission of viruses, but they are not absolutely perfect. They're a barrier which decreases the transmission by diminishing the contact of skin on skin, whether they're mucous membranes or non-mucous membrane skin parts. But you'll know that there's elements of the genitals which are not covered and uh, by, by condoms, and it's through those areas that you can still get some spread. So by no means will cut down your chance of getting HPV altogether. So there's, you know, like with sex, like with life, there really is a no zero risk environment. Um, the best that you can do is to try to be transparent about your own life, your own sexual life and history, have conversations with your prospective partners, use condoms, um, and maybe beware, because if a person has had one STI before, there is a chance that they could have other STIs. And you could always, if you are in a new relationship and you want to establish trust with somebody who you think that you may have a serious relationship with, it's a good idea to both of you go and have STI checks to see what kind of STIs you may have. So if you are somebody who's uh, needing a pap smear, uh, have your pap smear and have HPV looked for. It is harder, Patricia, to be able to, as a male, if you don't have a watch, to be tested. There's no known way to really be screened for HPV if you don't have if you don't have any signs of it. It's just really a question sure. of what your risk profile is. Now, now for one who has HPV, both male and female, if they are now yeah. worried about fertility, should they be worried, um, or should um, you know ha- conceiving children be something that is out of uh, you know uh, out of the line, especially if they've already contracted HPV? Generally, in the vast majority of cases, it will have absolutely nothing to do with their fertility at all. The exception to that would be if the HPV caused there to be uh, a cervical cancer, which would tend to be in, you know, that, that, that's not going to be in teenagers or in younger adults. Possibly older, older adults are, are the group who are most likely to have cervical cancer. And if you've got a, a precancer or cervical cancer, you may be treated with an ablation to the, um, the cervix, some kind of surgical procedure which removes that precancerous or cancerous area. Um, It's a very, very safe thing to have done, but what it may do is it may cause the cervix, which is the door to the uterus, to not close properly and that could predispose um, a woman to um, a premature labor or to an incompetent cervix which causes loss of the fetus. But once again, I'm kind of emphasizing very rare, very, very, very rare effects. So you know, these are these are so rare that in fact they, they don't really bear worrying about. And you know, at that kind of stage, in these in these rare circumstances, it's more the the, the cervical cancer or a typical cell that you have to worry about. The HPV itself, and just having HPV, which is incredibly common, is not something which impacts on your fertility.
Let me go to A-Teamers' uh, comments. Uh, remember, if you'd like to ask a question or give us a comment around our topic, we are talking untreatable, uncurable STDs, and uh, we'll be going through them. We have just uh, heard from Dr. Anthony Smith around HPV and how you can be safe despite the fact of being diagnosed with HPV. To reach us, a call in on 011-714-2006, or you can WhatsApp 614 one zero four one zero seven SMSs go to four one three nine one. Good evening, SAF listeners. Uh, my fiance she's HIV, and then uh, she's uh, she she she's HIV, and then positive, and then I'm negative. But uh, she said her. Uh, HIV test shows inconclusive, which means that maybe it cannot be tran- transmitted to to me. But uh, I always get worried that maybe one day my bed CD count will collapse without me being aware because we're trying to have a baby. It's same that uh, 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 what you call uh, HIV is, is no longer in a bloodstream or in a fluid, so I cannot be trans. It cannot be transmitted to me. I just wonder, want to find out if that is true. Very good question. There, taking us straight to HIV, Doctor Smith. Please uh, do respond. Patricia, could you um, could you repeat that question to me? It was quite soft, so All I was right. able to hear. Exactly. No problem, no problem. So our A-team is saying that he is uh, HIV negative while his fiance is HIV positive. And um, right. according to what the fiance has said, her HIV uh, blood tests come back as inconclusive, um, which uh, according to him, it means that uh, the HIV is no longer prevalent in her bloodstream or in her fluids. So they can try conceiving and they are trying to have a child but he's worried um, that you know the HIV can spring up again in her bloodstream without both of them noticing and he's always worried that he might end up being HIV positive. Sure okay so that is that is quite an interesting question it is it is a little confusing though on some levels because the term inconclusive is used to describe a test where you don't know from that test, you don't know whether that person has HIV or hasn't. It's usually done when the antibody test is very what we call equivocal or just not clear. So if you've got a test which is inconclusive, it means you don't know whether that person is HIV positive or not. Um, and usually then the test will be repeated after a period of time or a different test would be done, uh, which is not an antibody test, but a PCR test which looks really for the, the viral strands of the virus itself in order to make the diagnosis. So if indeed we're talking about uh, inconclusivity, then you'd want to define whether in fact this man's, this caller's partner, in fact has got HIV or not. Now, if it is the case that uh, the caller's partner has got HIV, but um, their test has been um, has been interpreted as a very, very high CD4 count or an undetected viral load. I don't know if he's maybe confusing the word um, inconclusive with undetected. 
because that's, that, that means that somebody who's got HIV is being treated maybe with ARVs, and their viral load is undertaking very, very low. And it is true that if you've got HIV and you've got what's called a discordant couple, that's when one of the couple is HIV positive and the other is HIV negative, then the chances of passing on the infection are, are just exceptionally small. I mean, it's not zero, but it's, it's, it's close to zero. Um, and and that, that, that would then be true. That you, he could go ahead, it wouldn't be affecting fertility, there'd be no problem. Um, some people under this situation, as, as, a, as, a, as the person who's HIV negative in the couple, may decide to go on what's called PrEP in order to further reduce any very tiny uh, chance. But that isn't strictly necessary if the, the blood tests have shown clearly that the HIV is undetectable. But I want to be clear that if it's undetectable on the test, it doesn't mean you don't have the HIV. You do have it. It's just that the viral load is so low that the tests which look for it can't actually find it. So uh, for couples who are saying, look, we are discordant, so one is HIV positive, one is HIV negative, um, the best method, would it then be for uh, them to go and prep um, if they're having unprotected sex and they're trying to conceive, or would it be for them to make sure that the partner who's HIV positive um, keeps their viral load at um, a very good point where it's undetectable, as you put it? I, I think there's no doubt that taking PrEP and being sure that you're undetectable is going to be overall the safest way of of protecting yourself. And that may be you know, the choice that people take. But nevertheless, if you're getting your viral loads checked very frequently and they are clearly and consistently low, the chances of you getting HIV are absolutely minute. But if you take that minute chance, you would probably reduce it by a further 90% to make it even even more incredibly exceptionally minute. So, the, you know, you'd have to then, that's an individual choice for, for that couple to make with their doctor, with their physician, to take maybe other factors into account. For example, the tolerability of the PrEP, the cost of the PrEP, the availability of the PrEP. You know, all of that type of thing. So there are, uh, a, a, there are a number of other factors which, which come into play. In, in this kind of situation. Is PrEP also lifelong for the HIV-negative partner? And it's, it's almost certainly would be, but what really happens in practice is that when you've been together for a long enough time and you uh, and the partner is undetectable, in fact, most, many if not most will come off PrEP over a period of time. It's just onerous and there's um, there's a sense of they're kind of alert, they're learning and they're comfortable and they the sense of risk often what leads people to want to take the prep is the perceived risk it's just the sense that they feel more comfortable taking it because as I was saying the the actual um, the, the actual uh, risk the the benefit that it confers is very 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 small but they just feel a little bit more comfortable and it's important during sexual activity to feel comfortable and to feel um, as as uh, risk risk free as you possibly can, and there just some people whose anxiety means that they like to take the prep as well. Um, but uh, you do find that over longer periods of time, if um, in a discordant couple, they they they, you know, they worry a little bit less and they and they take the prep less. But if you wanted to take a hard line and you wanted to be absolutely certain that you're going to be um, you're going to uh, be taking as little risk as possible then taking PrEP ongoing would be the best thing to do. 
Here's a question from an A-teamer who's anonymous. Says, uh, I'm having unprotected sex with a certain lady for the past two months, but I haven't experienced any STIs. Should I start using condoms now? Yes. Um, so, so the answer is definitely yes. But if you're going to continue with the same partner, why don't they have a conversation and go and both have tests so that they have a little bit more information information about you know what the HIV status is whether maybe they've had herpes simplex before um, maybe a pap smear to to know whether um, the lady has has got uh, whether she's uh, HPV positive or has got atypical cells um, and you know, that would go a long way in being able to should I say um, further this the discussion and the intimacy between them in, in, in order to to further the trust that they have in each other. I often find that these conversations don't only clarify your risk of, a, of STIs, but they also bring a couple together because what they're doing is they, they're really engaging in an intimate way with difficulties in a conversation which brings them closer together. Um, and if those conversations go very badly, well, I suppose the opposite can occur. And you know, a fragile relationship will, will then you know, break down a little bit more quickly. But for the most part, they, they usually are quite productive conversations. But this, just because you haven't got an STI by two months doesn't necessarily mean that you can't get an STI going into the future. So I think probably is best to use a condom for a little while. Um, but often what happens if you have been monogamous and in a monogamous relationship over a period of time, then often partners will stop using condoms, they have a trust in each other, nobody develops an STI, and then your chances of, of, of the risk of getting an STI will, will gradually fall. I suppose, Patricia, the thing with STIs and with sex and with life is that there's no zero risk. Um, and <laughs> the amount of times that I've had in, with my patients where you've had you know, individuals who had multiple partners, many different kinds of sexual activities, and have never had an STI. And then there's some poor person who's had one or two experiences and has been unfortunate enough to get an STI on those occasions. Mm. It's, it's so arbitrary. It Doc, really is. Doc, on that note, let's take a quick break. We'll be back. Okay. Closet Conversations. Quick reminder, A-teamers, no one under the age of 18 should be tuned in right now because this is the closet conversation. We are talking with Dr. Anthony Smith, who is a family physician and a medical sexologist, talking about uh, incurable or untreatable STIs and uh, how we can navigate them in order for us to have healthy sexual lives and keep ourselves and our partners safe. We've talked about HPV and HIV, but Doc, on the topic of HIV, is there anything else that we need to be aware of? You've spoken about PrEP and um, the viral load being undetected. Is there anything else that we need to be aware of? I suppose the one thing which combines the two subjects that we're talking about, which is HIV and HPV, is that if you are HIV positive and your immune system is compromised, which is to say that the CD4 cells are maybe a little bit lowish and you've got a little bit of a viral load, so it's not fully fully treated or your immune system just as a whole is low, especially if, um, and if you have a, a HPV as well as a woman, you must be particularly careful of getting your pap smears to look out for a cervical cancer because your risk of cervical cancer is greater than if you had a, uh, compared to if you had a fully functioning immune system. So that is a, that is a scenario where, where, where you need to be particularly careful. 
But I suppose, you know, when it comes to um, HIV and transmission of HIV, there is you know, a great deal to, to uh, I mean, the, 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 such a wide topic and such a topic of contention. You know, we talk about PrEP, which is for people who are uh, potentially at risk and increasingly young adults, um, you know, and in particular men who have sex with men, but also young heterosexual men and women are, are going for, for, for PrEP. Maybe they are at a stage of their lives or the nature of their lives is such that their, um, their risk profile is a little bit unpredictable. And they will come and they will ask for, for PrEP, which is very, very safe. It's an antiretroviral treatment, which cuts down significantly the chance of you getting an HIV infection. So, I mean, I think at some point this was a controversial thing, but the, the science behind it is absolutely um, solid, and the side effect and the risk is very, very low. And, of course, those who are on PrEP still do need to see their doctors in order to get their re-prescriptions, to get their, themselves checked periodically for STIs, and also to have a few blood tests to see that the medications aren't having negative effects on their body, like their kidneys, for example. Mm. And, you know, with that ATMO sent the message around uh, him being in a relationship uh, for two months with unprotected sex. I mean, HPV and HIV, you can't see the signs and symptoms so quickly. Um, so I, I would really urge this ATMO to go with their partner and get checked for all potential STDs. Um, because some just, you, you don't see it. No one, especially in the initial stages, you can tell whether or not they've got HIV. Yes, and then I think that's absolutely right. You know, these viruses are are quiet; they're silent. You can't necessarily tell uh, what's happening, and people themselves don't know. And then, you know, we've talked also about other STIs, which are silent. Maybe the more treatable ones, things like chlamydia, uh, certain you know certain types of uh, urethritis or uh, or um, a discharge type related infections. But the other infections which you just don't really necessarily know that you have syphilis, for example. It's interesting. You know, every now and then we'll make a diagnosis of syphilis, um, which you think was a, an 18th century illness, but it certainly is a reality in everyday life in the contemporary world. And you don't know. So testing and being vigilant and, and uh, not just trusting fate is, is a really good, good policy in this case. Let's go to this voice note. Um, good evening, Suspat and the doctor. Um, I'd just like to know, um, is it possible to get like vaccines or like medicines to take to protect against um, what you call sexually transmitted infections? Yeah. Doc, are there vaccines for STDs? Well, that's such a great question. I'm so glad we brought that up because that actually isn't something we've talked about yet and really does need to be talked about. Yeah. So for, for HPV, there are vaccines, um, vaccines which cover those HPV viruses which are the most oncogenic, by which I mean those viruses most likely to cause cervical cancer. Um, they are indicated from the age of nine up until, uh, and, and really the age, it's, it's up until about 26 uh, the indication, but in fact, you can have it up until a much later age uh, for men and for women. And it's a series of injections which have got significant protection against HPV uh, and um, have also been proven to cut down the incidence of cervical cancer very, very significantly. So this has increasingly been um, advised for adolescents, 
um, those before, you know, usually before uh, they're initiating uh, sexual activity. Um, but in fact, if you are, even if you're an older person in your 20s or 30s, possibly even your 40s, you still could consider getting this vaccine if you are, say, starting a new relationship or um, are in a position where you think you may be possibly at risk. So, so the vaccines for HPV are well established. They work. They are safe. Um, and they are generally given quite regularly. So, yes, that's for HPV. The one for which everybody's searching, but up until now, unfortunately, there's been no real advancement is for herpes. There is a vaccine that's been apparently useful in rats and rodents, but hasn't translated well into humans. But hopefully with the new vaccine technologies that have come out of um, the COVID infections, we will see some advancements relatively rapidly. But unfortunately, for the meantime, there isn't a vaccine for herpes. The other vaccine that is available, however, which is effective, is that for hepatitis B. And anybody who is at risk for hepatitis B, and hepatitis B is conferred sexually. It's also conferred with any blood product or any intimate connection with blood blood uh, product. So if you are even a, if you're a medical student, if you're a doctor, you know, all of the medical students have their antibodies checked and get immunized because they're working in a high-risk environment. But certainly if you are a person who thinks you're at high risk of getting an STI, uh, then getting immunized with, for hepatitis B is a very, very good idea because chronic hepatitis B is really an awful infection and a dangerous infection to have at a later stage. And that's the, it's another silent STI, which maybe doesn't get as much airtime as herpes and HPV, but nevertheless, it's still quite an important one to consider. So let's talk about um, hepatitis B. Um, how prevalent is it? And when one has contracted it, how can they live uh, a healthy sexual life? Yes, so, so that, that is quite, quite interesting. Um, I think just for listeners, it's a good idea to differentiate between hepatitis B and hepatitis A. And then there's also hepatitis C. Uh, and then there's a variety of other uh, non-A, B or C hepatitis infections. Um, the hepatitis C similarly can it, it can be um, in fact you, you can be infected with that and that's also something you can't clear but there's no vaccine for hepatitis C. So a hepatitis infection maybe one will will be familiar with it. You get as an acute illness you get extremely sick, very nauseous. You go yellow, you get jaundiced, um, you have high fevers, and with hepatitis A your body is able to clear it so that it doesn't stay within your body, it doesn't stay within the liver, you get better fully. It may weaken you, and you may be sick for a number of months even, but ultimately you generally get better. So hepatitis A, we don't worry about as much. Hepatitis B and C, however, can get into your, your liver. Most people will clear hepatitis B, but there's a very small percentage who can get a grumbling hepatitis, which then um, is a, a chronic liver inflammation, some of which can progress to cirrhosis of the liver and some of which can progress also to cancer of the liver. So what do you do when you've got hepatitis B? Well, anybody you have, you're coming into contact with would need to be vaccinated. And in fact, that probably is all you really need to do. Uh, and once they're vaccinated, then you can measure antibodies to hepatitis B so you can tell the degree to which you are uh, successfully vaccinated, then for the most part you are you are protected. Hepatitis C is a slightly different scenario, but nowadays there's specialised treatment for hepatitis C and B, 
which allows you to eradicate it. It's quite sophisticated, um, immune-modulated treatments, which usually specialist centers will administer. So there are cures for these. But nevertheless, they can be transmitted. And one would then also have to just follow all of the, the usual rules of safe sexual behavior at times when there was still vulnerability. Um, and then you know, if it is the case that hepatitis B is contracted sexually, then you always look for the other STIs at the same time. You look for HIV, you look for herpes, you look for all the others, just so that you know what you're dealing with. Um, but I suppose, Patricia, the thing that you also are asking, or which everybody has on their minds, are, you know, how do you deal with a scenario where there's always going to be a little bit of risk and you can't eradicate it? I mean, that's even for herpes, for example. You know, when you have a partner that with your best intentions, you can't you can't get the risk down to zero that you always are living with a little bit of a possibility that you could get an sti with your with your partner i don't know patricia is this something which which you think is an important question i think it's extremely important doc yeah i mean that, that is that is like a for me this is a, a question of 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 risk in life and it then comes down to the individual and how anxious one gets how careful one can be and then your capacity to be able to say, okay, so there's a little bit of risk, but I'm going to be comfortable to live with that risk, um, depending obviously on what the risk is. For example, there's the risk of getting herpes, but if you do get it, it's not going to be an illness which is going to ever kill you. It's going to be uncomfortable. It certainly has many repercussions, but HIV or hepatitis B can have much more serious repercussions. So the risk profile is slightly different for each of these. But I'm coming back to the, the reality that sexual activity, like much of life, is something which comes with risk. And as we all know, you engage with sexual activity, there's also the relationship you're having with that person. You're exposing yourself to all kinds of manner of, of risks, which is you know, from, from heartbreak to a physical illness. And of course, the rewards are commensurate for that as well, um, and which is why you know, even with the risk of HIV and with STIs, there are many people out there who are prepared to take these risks. Let's go to the next voice note from our A-teamer. Okay, Mama. Can you ask Dog there if there is... Is it possible to get um, multiple transmit, transmitted diseases? Maybe three or at one at once. Gonna listen. Very good question, Doc. Is it possible for a person to have more than one STI at the same time? Yes, that is a good question because um, it, it's it's very very pertinent. And as a a doctor working in the field, you you know that many of these infections hang around in gangs, they hang around in groups. If you've got one STI, you are more likely to have a second one. Um, And if you've got two, you're more likely to have a third. Both because your risk, you're on an environment where your risk is greater, but also because some of the STIs will cause there to be, you could say, inflammation around the genitalia and the mucous membrane. And the usual skin barriers to infection will be compromised, which means it's more likely that you can get an infection. So, it, it is often the case that these infections can be found coincidentally at the same time, 
Uh, and so if you find that you've got one STI, as a, as, a ma- as a rule of thumb, your doctor should be checking for all the others, and you yourself should be asking your doctor to check for other STIs as well. So it's it not only is it possible, but it's also common to have them uh, coexisting in groups. Sure, that can't be easy. It must be difficult for a person who's got multiple STIs at the same time. After all, um, it, it, it must hamper on their sexual lives. It, it can't be easy. Yeah, no, Patricia, it's true. Uh, the, the diagnosis of an STI, full stop, if you've never had one before, it has got a, a really um, an awful impact on one's life, and it, it creates a lot of anxiety, and especially amongst younger younger patients, younger people, who who maybe um, are embarking on their sexual lives and 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 are really looking forward, and then become very anxious about what this means for their future. And I've really, and I, I think we've, we've spoken about herpes before. It's, it's really in the context of herpes. Um, though, of course, HIV is, 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 a, is another subject altogether. But, but, but herpes is one where, where my, um, my experience with, with devastated patients is really something to behold when, when they first are, are getting the, the, that, that diagnosis. You know, the meaning of it, the pain, the fact that they know now that they can't necessarily get rid of it, you know, trying to think and consider what it means to discuss it with a partner, the concern while they're having sex that they could be passing it on to somebody else is often a paralyzing emotion which really interferes with one's sex life. And it really can sometimes take, you know, some people can deal with this kind of thing really well, but there are a few who, who really struggle and, and often will require specialized counseling or some kind of intervention to allow them to you know, finally come to terms with this or to just in, you know, incorporate it as something which um, is, is really... And there are strategies in which you can incorporate it, such that it's something that you, you, you take and wear lightly, rather than as a terrible curse. Anonymous here on SMS says, I had pubic lice uh, 25 years ago and have tried lots and lots of shampoos. None is helping. What can I do? So... Um, can I get the question right? How, how long ago did, did this 25 years have, ago. 25 years 25, ago. And you had lice for 25 years. Would that be correct? It, it, that's what it that? seems from the, the SMS, yeah. Okay. Well, and look, that's a very, very rare situation, I have to say. Um, so I would want to know whether, in fact, there isn't a coexistent dermatological condition over and above the lice which could be contributing to the problem. But usually they do respond relatively well to a variety of local preparations. Usually they would get rid of all the hair because that's where uh, often you will find the lice sitting. Um, And once you got rid of the hair, you utilize various kind of semi-toxic soaps, which um, the the lice will kill them, will, will, will get rid of them. And there are also, for those which are particularly resistant, medications you can take. But uh, I'll be hoping that this uh, caller will have consulted a doctor or a dermatologist after such a long run of having struggled with a, a skin condition in, in the, the genital area. And I, I can't believe this could have been something that, um, that hasn't caused a lot of suffering and hasn't been quite a difficult thing after, over such a long period of time. Mm. But definitely, if that's, if that's not getting better, I think a dermatologist would be a good person to, to do a, a proper skin assessment to make sure that the diagnosis is correct, that in fact this is just pubic lice. 
And then the last question, Doc, before we go, uh, from uh, Mamukiti in Rustenburg, who's asking, um, at what age should a woman be going for her pap smear and how often? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good question. Um, there are different, um, there are different um, guidelines for this. Uh, generally, from the time of sexual um, activity, um, and any time after, from a year or so after that, would be the time where one could commence uh, having a pap smear. But in fact, you don't really need to have a pap smear until the age of 2021, 20, because the the chances of getting cervical cancer at that age, or well, below that age, are so, so unbelievably rare. that It really probably isn't warranted, and, and it's probably a little bit of an intrusive intervention at that young age. But for the most part, I would say late teens, early 20s, or early 20s would be the time when we would start with pap smears. Um, and uh, it would then also depend on the time when sexual activity occurred. So the earlier that occurred, perhaps you'd be going on the earlier, at an earlier time. Um, but the prime reason for the pap smear is to pick up cervical cancers or the risk of cervical cancers. And th- that isn't necessary in the teenage years. And how often should a woman be going? Uh, and then, then it's between two to three yearly is more than adequate, unless you have, unless you are HIV positive, um, or have an, uh, another immunocompromised um, uh, type of illness, or you have a strong family history, uh, or there's some other extenuating circumstance, like you've had a previous pap smear which has shown abnormalities. But for the most part, two to three yearly would be fine. Excellent. Doc, thank you so very much uh, for enlightening us about uh, these uh, four viruses uh, that we get uh, sexually transmitted and how we can live better with them and uh, manage them. It's been such a great pleasure. pleasure. How do we get in touch with you if our A-teamers need to consult? The best is to get hold of me via my website, dranthonysmith.co.za. And yes, drop me an email through that if you need to be in contact. Excellent. Dr. Smith, thank you so very much. Have a good morning. Thank thank you, Patricia. Thank you so much. A-teamers, it's been such a great time with you. Looking forward to our Thursday edition, which will come in a couple of hours. We'll be back at 10 o'clock and, uh, yeah, we'll give you another bumper edition of the Late Night Conversations. At 3 a.m., please tune in to Sound Awake with Asanda Beta. May goodness and grace lead you all to the great heights of success.